Book Two, Chapter Five, Part Four of the Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But suddenly, the engineer dominating the highwayman, he shut off his steam and threw back his brake to the extreme notch. Directly ahead of him rose a semaphore, placed at a point where evidently a derailing switch branched from the line. The semaphore's arm was dropped over the track, setting the danger signal that showed the switch was open. In an instant, Dyke saw the trick. They had meant to smash him here, had been clever enough, quick-witted enough to open the switch, but had forgotten the automatic semaphore that worked simultaneously with the movement of the rails. To go forward was certain destruction. Dyke reversed. There was nothing for it but to go back. With a wrench and a spasm of all its metal fibers, the great compound braced itself, sliding with rigid wheels along the rails. Then, as Dyke applied the reverse, it drew back from the greater danger, returning toward the less. Inevitably now, the two engines, one on the up, the other on the down line, must meet and pass each other. Dyke released the levers, reaching for his revolver. The engineer once more became the highwayman in peril of his life. Now, beyond all doubt, the time for fighting was at hand. The party in the heavy freight engine that lumbered after in pursuit, their eyes fixed on the smudge of smoke on ahead that marked the path of the fugitive, suddenly raised a shout. He stopped! He's broke down! Watch now, and see if he jumps off! Broke nothing! He's coming back! Ready now! He's got to pass us! The engineer applied the brakes, but the heavy freight locomotive, far less mobile than Dyke's flyer, was slow to obey. The smudge on the rails ahead grew swiftly larger. He's coming! He's coming! Look out! There's a shot! He's, he's shooting already! A bright white sliver of wood leaped into the air from the sooty window sill of the cab. Fire on him! Fire on him! While the engines were yet two hundred yards apart, the duel began, shot answering shot, the sharp staccato reports punctuating the thunder of wheels and the clamor of steam. Then the ground trembled and rocked. A roar as of heavy ordnance developed with the abruptness of an explosion. The two engines passed each other, the men firing the while, emptying their revolvers, shattering wood, shivering glass, the bullets clanging against the metal work as they struck and struck and struck. The men leaned from the cabs toward each other, frantic with excitement, shouting curses, the engines rocking, the steam roaring, confusion whirling in the scene like the whirl of a witch's dance, the white clouds of steam, the black eddies from the smokestack, the blue wreaths from the hot mouths of revolvers, swirling together in a blinding maze of vapor, spinning around them, dazing them, dizzying them while the head rang with hideous clamor and the body twitched and trembled with the leap and jar of the tumult of machinery. Roaring, clamoring, reeking with the smell of powder and hot oil, spitting death, resistless, huge, furious, an abrupt vision of chaos, faces, rage distorted, peering through smoke, hands gripping outward from sudden darkness, prehensile, malevolent, terrible as thunder, swift as lightning, the two engines met and passed. He's hit! cried Delaney. I know I hit him. He can't go far now. After him again. He, he won't dare go through Bonneville. It was true. Dyke had stood between cab and tender throughout all the duel, exposed, reckless, thinking only of attack and not of defense, and a bullet from one of the pistols had grazed his hip. How serious was the wound he did not know, but he had no thought of giving up. He tore back through the depot at Guadalajara in a storm of bullets, and clinging to the broken window ledge of his cab, was carried toward Bonneville, 
on over the long trestle and Broderson Creek, and through the open country between the two ranches of Los Muertos and Quien Sabe. But to go on to Bonneville meant certain death. Before, as well as behind him, the roads were now blocked. Once more he thought of the mountains. He resolved to abandon the engine and make another final attempt to get into the shelter of the hills in the northernmost corner of Quien Sabe. He set his teeth. He would not give in. There was one more fight left in him yet, now to try the final hope. He slowed the engine down, and, reloading his revolver, jumped from the platform to the road. He looked about him, listening. All around him widened an ocean of wheat. There was no one in sight. The released engine, alone, unattended, drew slowly away from him, jolting ponderously over the rail joints. As he watched it go, a certain indefinite sense of abandonment, even in that moment, came over Dyke. His last friend, that also had been his first, was leaving him. He remembered that day long ago when he had opened the throttle of his first machine. Today it was leaving him alone, his last friend turning against him. Slowly it was going back toward Bonneville, to the shops of the railroad, the camp of the enemy, the enemy that had ruined him and wrecked him. For the last time in his life he had been the engineer. Now, once more, he became the highwayman, the outlaw against whom all hands were raised, the fugitive skulking in the mountains, listening for the cry of dogs. But he would not give in. They had not broken him yet. Never, while he could fight, would he allow S. Behrman the triumph of his capture. He found his wound was not bad. He plunged into the wheat on Quien Sabe, making northward for a division house that rose with its surrounding trees out of the wheat like an island. He reached it, the blood squelching in his shoes. But the sight of two men, Portuguese farmhands, staring at him from an angle of the barn, abruptly roused him to action. He sprang forward with peremptory commands, demanding a horse. At Guadalajara, Delaney and the sheriff descended from the freight engine. Horses now, declared the sheriff. He won't go into Bonneville, that's certain. He'll leave the engine between here and there and strike off into the country. We'll follow after him now in the saddle. Soon as he leaves his engine, he's on foot. We've as good as got him. Their horses, including even the buckskin mare that Dyke had ridden, were still at the station. The party swung themselves up, Delaney exclaiming, Here's my mount, as he bestrode the buckskin. At Guadalajara, the two bloodhounds were picked up again. Urging the jaded horses to a gallop, the party set off along the upper road, keeping a sharp lookout to right and left for traces of Dyke's abandonment of the engine. Three miles beyond the long trestle they found S. Behrman holding his saddle-horse by the bridle, and looking attentively at a trail that had been broken through the standing wheat on Quien Sabe. The party drew rein. Well, the engine passed by me on the tracks further up, and empty, said S. Behrman. Boys, I think he left her here. But before anyone could answer, the bloodhounds gave tongue again as they picked up the scent. That's him, cried S. Behrman. Go, get on, boys. They dashed forward, following the hounds. S. Behrman laboriously climbed to his saddle, panting, perspiring, mopping the roll of fat over his coat collar, and turned in after them, trotting along far in the rear, his great stomach and tremulous jowl shaking with the horse's gait. What a day, he murmured. What a day. Dyke's trail was fresh and was followed as easily as if made on new-fallen snow. In a short time the posse swept into the open space around the division house. The two Portuguese were still there, wide-eyed, terribly excited. Yes, 
Yes, Dyke had been there not half an hour since, had held them up, taken a horse, and galloped to the northeast, towards the foothills at the headwaters of Broderson Creek. On again at full gallop through the young wheat, trampling it under the flying hooves, the hounds hot on the scent, baying continually, the men on fresh mounts secured at the division house, bending forward in their saddles, spurring relentlessly, S. Behrman jolted along far in the rear. And even then, harried through an open country, where there was no place to hide, it was a matter of amazement how long a chase the highwayman led them. Fences were passed, fences whose barbed wire had been slashed apart by the fugitive's knife. The ground rose underfoot, the hills were at hand. Still the pursuit held on. The sun, long past the meridian, began to turn earthward. Would night come on before they were up to him? Look, look, there he is! Quick, there he goes! High on the bare slope of the nearest hill, all the posse, looking in the direction of Delaney's gesture, saw the figure of a horseman emerge from an arroyo, filled with chaparral, and struggle at a laboring gallop straight up the slope. Suddenly every member of the party shouted aloud. The horse had fallen, pitching the rider from the saddle. The man rose to his feet, caught at the bridle, missed it, and the horse dashed on alone. The man, pausing for a second, looked around, saw the chase drawing nearer, then turning back, disappeared in the chaparral. Delaney raised a great whoop. We got you now. Into the slopes and valleys of the hills dashed the band of horsemen, the trail now so fresh that it could be easily discerned by all. On and on it led them, a furious, wild scramble straight up the slopes. The minutes went by. The dry bed of a rivulet was passed, then another fence, then a tangle of manzanita, a meadow of wild oats full of agitated cattle, then an arroyo thick with chaparral and scrub oaks, and then, without warning, the pistol shots ripped out and ran from rider to rider with the rapidity of a gatling discharge, and one of the deputies bent forward in the saddle, both hands to his face, the blood jetting from between his fingers. Dyke was there, at bay at last, his back against a bank of rock, the roots of a fallen tree serving him as a rampart, his revolver smoking in his hand. "'You're under arrest, Dyke!' cried the sheriff. "'It's not the least use to fight. The whole country is up!' Dyke fired again, the shot splintering the foreleg of the horse the sheriff rode. The posse, four men all told, the wounded deputy, having crawled out of the fight after Dyke's first shot, fell back after the preliminary fusillade, dismounted, and took shelter behind rocks and trees. On that rugged ground, fighting from the saddle was impracticable. Dyke, in the meantime, held his fire, for he knew that once his pistol was empty, he would never be allowed to reload. Dyke! called the sheriff again. For the last time I summon you to surrender. Dyke did not reply. The sheriff, Delaney, and the man named Christian conferred together in a low voice. Then Delaney and Christian left the others, making a wide detour up the sides of the arroyo to gain a position to the left and somewhat to the rear of Dyke. But it was at this moment that S. Behrman arrived. It could not be said whether it was courage or carelessness that brought the railroad's agent within reach of Dyke's revolver, Possibly he was really a brave man, possibly occupied with keeping an uncertain seat upon the back of his laboring, scrambling horse. He had not noticed that he was so close upon that scene of battle. He certainly did not observe the posse lying upon the ground behind sheltering rocks and trees, and before anyone could call a warning he had ridden out into the open within thirty paces of Dyke's entrenchment. Dyke saw. There 
was the arch-enemy, the man of all men whom he most hated, the man who had ruined him, who had exasperated him and driven him to crime, and who had instigated tireless pursuit through all those past terrible weeks. Suddenly, inviting death, he leaped up and forward. He had forgotten all else, all other considerations. At the sight of this man, he would die, gladly, so only that S. Behrman died before him. "'I've got you, anyway!' he shouted as he ran forward. The muzzle of the weapon was not ten feet from S. Behrman's huge stomach as Dyke drew the trigger. Had the cartridge exploded, death, certain and swift, would have followed. But at this, of all moments, the revolver missed fire. S. Behrman, with an unexpected agility, leaped from the saddle, and, keeping his horse between him and Dyke, ran, dodging and ducking from tree to tree. His first shot a failure, Dyke fired again and again at his enemy, emptying his revolver, reckless of consequences. His every shot went wild, and before he could draw his knife, the whole posse was upon him. Without concerted plans, obeying no signal but the promptings of the impulse that snatched unerring at opportunity, the men, Delaney and Christian from one side, the sheriff and the deputy from the other, rushed in. They did not fire. It was Dyke alive they wanted. One of them had a riata snatched from a saddle pommel, and with this they tried to bind him. The fight was four to one, four men with law on their side to one wounded freebooter, half-starved, exhausted by days and nights of pursuit, worn down with loss of sleep, thirst, privation, and the grinding, nerve-racking consciousness of an ever-present peril. They swarmed upon him from all sides, gripping at his legs, at his arms, his throat, his head, striking, clutching, kicking, falling to the ground, rolling over and over, now under, now above, now staggering forward, now toppling back. Still Dyke fought. Through that scrambling, struggling group, through that maze of twisting bodies, twining arms, straining legs, S. Behrman saw him from moment to moment, his face flaming, his eyes bloodshot, his hair matted with sweat. Now he was down, pinned under, two men across his legs, and now halfway up again, struggling to one knee, then upright again, with half his enemies hanging on his back. His colossal strength seemed doubled. When his arms were held, he fought bull-like with his head. A score of times it seemed as if they were about to secure him finally and irrevocably, and then he would free an arm, a leg, a shoulder, and the group that for the fraction of an instant had settled, locked and rigid on its prey, would break up again as he flung a man from him, reeling and bloody, and he himself twisting, squirming, dodging, his giant fists working like pistons, backed away, dragging and carrying the others with him. More than once he loosened almost every grip, and for an instant stood nearly free, panting, rolling his eyes, his clothes torn from his body, bleeding, dripping with sweat, a terrible figure, nearly free. The sheriff, under his breath, uttered an exclamation. By God, he'll get away yet! S. Behrman watched the fight complacently. That'll only show obstinacy, he commented. But it don't show common sense. Yet, however Dyke might throw off the clutches and fettering embraces that encircled him, however he might disintegrate and scatter the band of foes that heaped themselves upon him, however he might gain one instant of comparative liberty, some one of his assailants always hung doggedly, blindly, to an arm, a leg, or a foot. 
and the others drawing a second's breath closed in again implacable unconquerable ferocious like hounds upon a wolf at length two of the men managed to bring dyke's wrists close enough together to allow the sheriff to snap the handcuffs on even then dyke clasping his hands and using the handcuffs themselves as a weapon knocked down delaney by the crushing impact of the steel bracelets upon the cowpuncher's forehead but he could no longer protect himself from attacks from behind and the riata was finally passed around his body pinioning his arms to his sides after this it was useless to resist the wounded deputy sat with his back to a rock holding his broken jaw in both hands the sheriff's horse with its splintered foreleg would have to be shot delaney's head was cut from temple to cheekbone the right wrist of the sheriff was all but dislocated the other deputy was so exhausted he had to be helped to his horse. But Dyke was taken. He himself had suddenly lapsed into semi-unconsciousness, unable to walk. They sat him on the buckskin, S. Behrman supporting him, the sheriff on foot leading the horse by the bridle. The little procession formed and descended from the hills, turning in the direction of Bonneville. A special train, one car and an engine, would be made up there, and the highwayman would sleep in the Visalia jail that night. Delaney and S. Behrman found themselves in the rear of the cavalcade as it moved off. The cowpuncher turned to his chief. Well, Cap'n, he said, still panting as he bound up his forehead. Well, we got him. End of Book Two, Chapter Five.